Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark, your host. Thank you for joining me once again and apologies for the delay in releasing this episode. I had to go to America at quite short notice so that kind of screwed up the scheduling but um, I'm really grateful that you've waited so patiently. Um, The good news is that we will be back to weekly episodes as of next month and what's more, Bethan will be back too. Thank you to our new Patreon supporters. We've got loads of you which is just crazy. Um, So thanks to Nicola Reed, Jade Basket, Tess and Jess, Mel Nugent, Gemma Martin, Lucy Florence, Sonia, Austin Ascot, Amy Crane and the amazingly named Beckt Myself, which I love. Um, So you guys were all entered into a competition to win a Cadbury's Christmas chocolate hamper and a copy of renowned Drugs Mule Michaela McCollum's brand new book, You'll Never See Daylight Again. And the lucky winner was drawn on Monday. So huge congratulations to Austin Ascot. Uh, Well done and many thanks for supporting the show in this way. We also ran a competition for our existing Patreon supporters with the same prizes up for grabs. So congratulations go to Carol Wood, who was the lucky winner in that draw. Prizes have been posted and should be with you very soon. It's Christmas post, so um, don't shout at me. Um, If you too would like to be in with a chance of winning more fabulous prizes like this, then head over to our Patreon page where you can support the show for as little as $3 a month. There's no minimum commitment. We have different tiers of support with different benefits. Uh, We have bonus episodes, so do have a think about checking us out there. Uh, You can just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast, or as I always say if you can't be bothered to um, type that into the address bar if you just google patreon and seeing red you'll find us pretty quickly and we also have a bonus episode going up this sunday um, so check that out we also have some exclusive seeing red merchandise for sale at the moment over on our facebook and instagram pages uh, we've got wine glasses we've got coasters t-shirts uh, one t-shirt with a rather naughty quote from the tracy andrews episode uh, so i'll see if i can get a photo of me wearing that one for you um, but yeah check it out and grab it while it's hot uh, make a great secret santa present uh, for any listeners of the show or perhaps just a cheeky christmas present for yourself Today's episode takes us back to 1986 and to the once industrious town of Greenock in the west central lowlands of Scotland. 
Historically, Greenock was an important town noted for its post-war contribution to industry. The town relied heavily on shipbuilding, sugar refinery and wool manufacturing, but as these industries declined in the 70s and 80s, unemployment became a major issue for the area. For several decades, Greenock struggled to gain a new positive identity, and it is only in the last 10 years that it has once again started to thrive. Today, the town is home to a number of call centres for the financial services sector, and following recent reinvestment and regeneration of large parts of the town, it is now firmly on the map as an up-and-coming area. Indeed, with the recent development of the Clydeport Container Terminal as an ocean terminal for cruise ships, it has seen an unexpected growth in tourism. And it is a beautiful part of the world, after all, it's on the banks of the River Clyde. Perhaps you have visited the town or you know somebody who lives there, like Geraldine Stewart, one of our loyal listeners. Geraldine got in touch with us recently and suggested the case for today's episode as she has a personal connection to the story and I'm really grateful Geraldine for you reaching out to us because it's not a case that I'd previously been aware of. Whilst Greenock is now on the up, back in 1986 it was sadly very much in decline and the events of the 1st of June that year did nothing to shine a positive light on the town. Elaine Doyle was a bubbly 16-year-old girl in 1986. She was popular and on the cusp of adulthood. Her job in a local jewellery shop funded her active social life, and although a regular at various clubs around the town, she was described as a sensible girl. The 1st of June fell on a Sunday that year. Elaine had arranged to go to a disco with friends at the Celtic Club in the centre of Greenock. As she got ready for her big night out, her father Jack warned her to be careful and to watch herself. As I mentioned earlier, Greenock was a town in decline in the 1980s, and with that decline came unemployment and an increase in crime. Jack feared for the safety of his daughter. There had been a high-profile murder in this relatively small town just two years previously. But he knew she was turning into a young woman and he couldn't wrap her up in cotton wool for the rest of her life. Besides, she would be with friends and while she was only 16, she had an old head on young shoulders. Notwithstanding this, Jack advised her to walk back home using the main roads and Elaine agreed to be home between 1 and 1.30 the following morning. As Elaine finished getting ready that night, her thoughts turned to the Celtic Club and the fun she would have that evening drinking and dancing with her girlfriends. Although Elaine and her friends were underage, they never had a problem getting into the Celtic club. They looked the part, far older than their years, and Elaine prided herself on her great sense of style. She had spent hours choosing her outfit that night and eventually settled on a black and white dress teamed with her favourite blue leather jacket. Hair back home to within an inch of its life, Elaine set off to meet her friends. It was a fun evening, and whilst Elaine had enjoyed a few drinks, she was far from drunk, although the night did end at the local burger van, so they were probably a bit tipsy. As the girls reflected on their night over a greasy burger, reality was starting to set in. It was Monday morning now, and Elaine had promised she would be home for one thirty. It was a school night after all. Elaine's friends lived in the opposite direction to her, so they headed their separate ways at a little after midnight. One of Elaine's friends was getting a lift home with her brother and offered to drop Elaine back at her house that night. But Elaine refused, saying it would be out of his way. And it seems this was typical of her, always putting others first. 
Elaine walked back using the main roads as instructed by her dad, and this was a route she had often walked in the early hours of the morning. Although it was dark, the streets were fairly well lit, and Elaine knew it wouldn't be long before she was home. But Elaine wouldn't make it home this time. Her body was discovered just after 7am that morning by a local resident who had gone to pick up his car from a lane behind a hut used by the air training corps. She was naked except for a bra which was attached to her arm and in a bizarre twist her clothes had been folded neatly at her feet. When Elaine didn't arrive home as planned her parents presumed she had stayed over at her friend's which she'd done before at the last minute following a night out. They weren't alarmed, this was in the days before mobile phones and they knew Elaine would not have wanted to call the house phone and wake everybody up just to advise that she wouldn't be back as planned. When her parents phoned around her friends the following morning they were met with the disturbing news that Elaine had not stayed over with any of them. She was last seen heading in the direction of home just after midnight. And so every parent's worst nightmare began. After discovering Elaine's body, the local resident alerted the police. As they sealed off the crime scene, their colleagues were taking a call at the station from Elaine's frantic parents, who were reporting her missing. Officers at the scene were alerted to the missing persons report and knew immediately the body must be that of Elaine. She was found just 40 metres from home. And I think that's what makes this case so agonising for me and I'm sure for you as well. It was quite a walk from the Celtic Club to Elaine's house. She was nearly home. She had almost made it to the safety of her bedroom only to be attacked in the last seconds of her journey. Officers went round to speak with Jack and Maureen, Elaine's parents. They asked for a description and Maureen gave them a recent photo and told them what Elaine had been wearing that evening. A black and white dress and a blue leather jacket. The exact clothes officers had discovered folded neatly at the feet of Elaine's lifeless body. Detectives broke the news to Jack and Maureen that a body had been discovered just 40 yards from their home, matching Elaine's description. Maureen broke down. She knew it was her daughter. It was quickly established that Elaine had been strangled. There were pronounced red marks around her neck and there were obvious signs of an agonising struggle. The fact she had been stripped naked pointed to it being a sexually motivated murder. Police began their investigations and assembled a team of officers from forces across the west of Scotland. There was understandably panic within the local community now. A murderer was on the loose and people feared for their safety. Women were warned not to walk alone at night and the finger of suspicion was being pointed all over the place. Elaine's father Jack was quickly ruled out as a suspect, he had an alibi on the night of his daughter's murder, but that didn't stop the initial rumour-mongering. Officers focused on the route Elaine would have taken on her way home from the Celtic Club. They knocked on hundreds of doors appealing for witnesses, and they managed to trace nearly everybody who had been at the Celtic Club on the night of Elaine's visit. Following an appeal on local news, a witness did come forward with a description of a man he'd seen running away in the early hours of Monday morning, close to where Elaine's body had been discovered. An artist's impression was produced and swiftly released to the media of a young man with red hair, and this sparked a number of leads, however, they all came to nothing. Police had no idea who had killed Elaine, and there was significant pressure to find closure for her tortured family. The story was now making national headlines and the combined forces of the west of Scotland 
were now under close scrutiny. Consequently, the decision was made to hand over the investigation to the serious crime squad in nearby Glasgow. And this was a blow for the local forces, but they complied and cooperated in their united pursuance for justice. Maureen and Jack Doyle remained hopeful that their daughter's killer would be caught. When Elaine's body was released back to the family, her funeral was held, and police attended in the vain hope her killer would show up. But as far as they were aware, he didn't. As the weeks passed by with no breakthrough, speculation within the local community began to intensify. Just who was responsible for Elaine's murder, and would they strike again? Many people passed through Greenock for work, lorry drivers and such like. There was a transitory vibe to the town, had it been an opportunistic killing by somebody who just happened to be passing through the area. If so, then it was unlikely they would ever be caught. Even more disturbing was the possibility that it was somebody within the local community. Someone that knew Elaine, a neighbour or a relative perhaps. Did someone see her at the Celtic Club that fateful night and follow her home? And this reminds me of the murder of Peter Falconio and the abduction and assault of Joanne Lees, um, which we covered as a two-parter in season two. Um, and it's just interesting, really, how some killers behave in very similar ways. So in that case, it's likely that Bradley Murdoch, the assailant, had seen Joanne several hours before he attacked her and killed her boyfriend and followed her and Peter for several hundred miles with the intention of raping and murdering Joanne Lees as well as murdering Peter. And murderers are often calculated and they will stalk their prey. Is this what happened to Elaine Doyle? Just as officers were starting to lose hope, Elaine's handbag was discovered on the steps of a library just around the corner from the murder scene a few weeks later. It had been missing since the night of the murder and despite forensic searches in the surrounding area, detectives had not been able to locate it. Was this a sign had the bag been left by Elaine's killer? Whoever had left it on the steps of that library had set fire to it in a desperate attempt to destroy the evidence. Unfortunately for police, no witnesses came forward and the discovery of the charred bag remained a mystery. There was a vague thought that this could have been the killer taunting the police for his own amusement. However, it was equally likely that somebody had just discovered the bag and stolen its contents before burning the evidence. Chillingly, if it was Elaine's killer, then it was likely that it was someone within the local community rather than a passing visitor. As the months turned into years, police hit one dead end after another. Eventually, the national press lost interest and Elaine's murder was only covered in sporadic articles, generally on the anniversary of her death. The murder moved into unsolved territory, but it continued to hang over the town like a black cloud, threatening to erupt at a moment's notice. In the intervening years, Elaine's family attempted to regain some semblance of normality, However, that was far easier said than done. They had no closure, and Maureen was particularly affected by the loss of her only daughter. Jack, although bereft, was more stoic, typical of that era. And if you look at the photos I've posted on our social media pages, you will see that familiar, haunting look in Maureen's eyes. The same look that you will find in any bereaved mother's face. Two decades passed and in 2012, police launched a cold case review of Elaine's murder, codenamed Evergreen. 
They took over the entire top floor of Greenock's police station and a team of 40 detectives were tasked with reviewing every piece of evidence that was gathered during the original investigation. Over the following months, they sifted through 14,000 witness statements, together with lots of evidence gathered at the crime scene. DNA testing didn't exist back in 1986, and so officers in 2012 weren't confident in nailing Elaine's killer through DNA. However, they were in luck. Savvy forensic scientists had taken skin samples from Elaine's body back in 1986. These samples were retested in 2012, and a full DNA profile of Elaine's killer was obtained. This was the breakthrough officers had been so desperately longing for. This sample was immediately cross-checked against a national DNA database, but there was no match. Elaine's killer had either managed to live a crime-free life since her murder, or had simply gotten away with any further crimes. In the initial investigation, there had been a total of 772 potential suspects. Cold case detectives re-interviewed as many of these suspects as they could and requested voluntary DNA samples from them. Hundreds of samples were taken and subsequently compared to the sample taken from Elaine's body back in 1986. One of those suspects was a man named John Doherty. Doherty had featured in the original investigation as he was named by his friend who was interviewed at the time as being at the Celtic Club on the night of Elaine's murder. But Doherty had not come forward at the time to say that he was at the club that night and even though his name had been given to the police by his friend, he was never spoken to at the time or since. Now, police have defended this failing by saying they were inundated with information during the original investigation um, and and subsequently as well, and that they had to prioritise leads as best they could. And we have seen this before, of course, with other high-profile investigations. The Yorkshire Ripper springs to mind. So when a crime garners mass media attention, police often receive thousands, if not tens of thousands of leads to follow up on. And back in the 70s and 80s, information gathering and processing was just not as sophisticated as it is today. It was difficult to prioritise leads effectively, so I do kind of have some sympathy for the police, and I don't fully blame them. I think it's easy to say they missed a vital lead, but that is often with the benefit of hindsight, so I'm not going to give them a hard time on this occasion. Um, But yeah, perhaps I suppose it's easy to look back and say they really should have interviewed Doherty at that time. So, 25 years after Elaine's murder, the police net was closing in on John Doherty. Over the preceding quarter of a century, Doherty had been living a simple life in Greenock. He had a partner, two young children, and he was working as a driver for the local council. After officers had visited Doherty to ask for a voluntary DNA sample, which he happily agreed to, the result came back as a match. Finally, it looked like they had their man. And I did think here, why did he hand over a sample so freely when he knew he was responsible for Elaine's murder and this would likely convict him? I wonder whether it was arrogance. Perhaps he thought they would not have a credible DNA profile to match his sample to after all these years. Or perhaps he had read up on DNA science and knew that it just didn't exist in 1986. Maybe he thought police were bluffing or trying to panic him into a confession. Or maybe he had simply had enough of living a lie. After all, he had had 25 years to reflect on this crime. 
Apart from a brief stint in the army, he'd spent all this time living and working in the community, seeing the heartbreaking appeals for information from Elaine's parents on every anniversary of her murder. Maybe he'd had enough and knew his time was up. Perhaps it was a relief. He wouldn't be constantly waiting for a knock at the door. And I also wonder why he'd continued to live in Greenock after the murder. Maybe living there had given him some kind of control, kept him closer to what was going on, the annual appeals for information reminding him that the police were no closer to catching him than they were at the very start of their investigation. Maybe it's the olden day equivalent of googling information on a murder investigation that you're involved in, a bit like Vincent Tabak did after he killed Joanna Yates, season 2 episode 6 for that case. By constantly keeping yourself up to date with the progress of the investigation, provided there is limited progress, you are continually reassuring yourself that you will not be caught, that you are safe. I don't know. Maybe he got off on the pain and misery he caused to Elaine's family. Maybe he reveled in his private status as a man who outwitted the police, a man who had gotten away with murder. It's an interesting thought. Let me know what you think. Why did he give that DNA sample over to the police so freely? Why did he continue living in Greenock, immersing himself deeper and deeper in the community he had ripped apart? Anyway, as I said, the sample came back as a match for Doherty. There was a one in a billion chance that it wasn't him. Police rejoiced that after all these years they had their man. But they needed to build their case. So they questioned Doherty's friends and associates, all the while building a picture of this man who on the surface seemed an upstanding member of the community. A family man, someone who had served for their country. It soon became clear that he had been at school with Elaine's older brother and it was never established whether Elaine knew Doherty at the time. He was five years older than her and would have been 21 at the time of her murder. But that is a possibility. And without wanting to besmirch her reputation, we have to look at the remote possibility that the two were in a clandestine relationship at the time of her murder. I doubt that's the case. There's no evidence to suggest that. But apart from the sexual element to this murder, there appears to be no motive. And although Elaine was uh, undressed when she was murdered, there is no evidence that she was actually sexually assaulted. From everything I've read, it appears the sexual element of Elaine's murder rests solely on this fact that she was undressed, which of course does lean to sexual deviancy, but was she actually sexually assaulted? I don't know. Police arrested Doherty at his house in a dawn raid and hauled him in for questioning. Despite having previously been questioned by officers, albeit informally, when he provided the DNA sample, he was said to be completely surprised and shocked at being arrested. During his interviews, he was cooperative and answered all of the questions that were put to him. He presented a calm demeanour and denied any involvement in Elaine's murder, but police were confident they had their man. The DNA evidence was compelling and Doherty had no rational explanation as to why his DNA was on Elaine's body. During the cold case review, detectives re-interviewed a further witness who had come forward back in 1986 claiming to have seen a man close to the murder scene at the time of Elaine's killing. 
This was a different witness to the one who had helped officers produce the artist's impression. This witness said the image of the man's staring eyes was burnt so deeply in his conscience that he would recognise him all these years later. So officers showed him a number of photos of men taken in 1986, including one of Doherty and he was able to identify Doherty as the man he had seen back in 1986. Despite a lack of any other hard evidence, Doherty was charged with the murder of Elaine Doyle and granted bail pending his murder trial, which I found a bit weird. Normally you wouldn't be granted bail in those circumstances. All I can think in in this scenario is, uh, is that there were no previous convictions in his history and also that there was a long time period since the murder and his arrest. Doherty was well known in the local community and there had been a real shock at his arrest, but not for Elaine's brother. He had known Doherty at school and knew he was responsible for his sister's death as soon as he heard rumours of his arrest. He never elaborated on this, but he was always adamant that police had caught Elaine's killer. The trial took place at Edinburgh High Court in the summer of 2014 and was the first case to go to trial following an investigation by the Crown Office's cold case unit. So it was a real success for them. It was a long trial. Over 52 days, the jurors heard the harrowing story of Elaine's final moments on this earth. How Doherty had likely seized her by the hair before striking her on the head and either then removing or forcing her to remove her clothing. They heard how he had more than likely forced Elaine to the ground, pushing her face into the dirt before kneeling on her and placing a ligature around her neck, strangling her in an attack that would have lasted several minutes. Details of Elaine's post-mortem were read to the court, noting that her cause of death was, quote, asphyxia due to strangulation by ligature. The ligature was believed to have been a rope and was never found. Understandably, Doherty's defence team launched a scathing attack on the investigation, and even senior officers leading the murder hunt admitted there was a serious shortcoming in the investigation. The so-called mistakes began with an act of compassion when a blanket from a police car was draped over Elaine's body to shield her from curious onlookers. Doherty's lawyer, Donald Finlay QC, branded the investigation a shambles and claimed the crime scene had been so contaminated that the DNA evidence was just not credible. He also lodged a special defence of incrimination and claimed the culprit may be among a list of 41 names taken from files of the police investigation. Addressing the jury, Lord Stewart said there had been no suggestion this was anything but murder. The crucial issue in this case was who did it. He told the eight women and seven men at the High Court in Edinburgh that they must put emotion aside and follow the evidence they accepted to its logical conclusion before warning, mistakes about identification have been made in court cases in the past. Lord Stewart urged jurors to take into account a number of factors when considering evidence about visual identification, such as whether a witness was able to get a fleeting glance or a longer look, the state of the lighting and whether there were any distinguishable features. He noted that both prosecution and defence had used emotive language in their closing speeches saying, Counsel are entitled to use emotive language to underline points they wish to bring to your attention and I do not criticise them for this. 
but he said the jury should not allow themselves to be swayed by prejudice or fancy or theoretical speculation when considering the evidence, warning them, you must put emotion aside and measure it quite dispassionately. Lord Stewart said jurors also had to satisfy themselves that DNA had got there during the commission of a crime, saying, you must follow the evidence you accept to its logical conclusion whether the outcome be conviction or acquittal. At the end of the trial, the jury found Doherty guilty by majority verdict and he was later sentenced to life imprisonment and told he would serve a minimum of 21 years. After the verdict, Doherty's lawyer told the court, I have failed Mr Doherty, I cannot help him now. Detective Superintendent Bobby Hendren said, This investigation has always been about Elaine Doyle and her family and bringing the man responsible for her murder to trial. I would like to pay tribute to her mum and brother who had continued to support us throughout this investigation and I am sorry that her dad is no longer with us. Sadly he had died before Doherty's arrest. He went on to say I can only hope this verdict brings some sort of comfort. I and all of the officers who worked on this investigation are well aware the senseless murder of Elaine has cast a long shadow over Greenock and we would not be where we are today without the community's support. In a statement released through Police Scotland after the conviction, Maureen Doyle thanked officers and staff who had worked on the inquiry for the past 28 years. She said, Particular thanks must go to Mr Frank Mulholland, the Lord Advocate, who was kind to my late husband Jack when he met him three years ago, and who has followed the progress of this inquiry since 1986. And Mr John Scullion for prosecuting the case at court. The people of Inverclyde who have lived this nightmare with us for the last 28 years and have always supported our family have our thanks as well. The result at court doesn't make our day-to-day lives any easier. The pain doesn't go away, but my son John and I take comfort that we now have justice for Elaine, which is all we, especially her dad, Jack, had campaigned for. So what do you think of today's case? I think it's a bit of a different one for us because there is a huge gap between the crime being committed and the assailant being brought to justice. And I think we've covered lots of cases before where generally where they're unsolved. So the crime happened a long time ago and nobody's been brought to justice. And that could have been the case had we been covering this case a few years ago before Doherty's arrest and conviction. So I think it's a nice case for us to cover where although it took 28 years, justice was done for Elaine and her family. Let us know what you think of the case. You can reach out to us in all of the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram and the other one, Twitter. Um, You can also email us. I can't remember the email address, but you'll find it somewhere in the show notes. Um, Do have a think about heading over to our Patreon page. The bonus episode goes up this Sunday. You can support the show for as little as $3 a month and we send out merchandise. If you're supporting us at the $5 tier, then you get access to all of the bonus content. And we've got a mini archive of of episodes there. Um, Some really interesting ones as well. Um, Thank you for listening and I will see you very soon. Bye.